0: If, uh, if you weren't here a few minutes before the service and didn't hear uh, Brian mention, uh, we are gonna have coffee and there's gonna be cake after the service, so you'll have time to uh, give them hugs and, and talk with them and say goodbye and, and all that personally as well. So uh, please hang around uh, for that. Uh, one other piece I just, I just wanted to mention before, we, before I preach uh, is that um, I've been talking about our soul care conference on March 3rd and 4th. Registration is now live. I just wanted to let you know. You can go to our website, um, and uh, there it is. Yeah, right on the front page. You've just scroll down a little way. There's that banner there. You can hit register, and it'll take you to a page that kind of explains a little bit more about what it is and gives you some information there's a video you can actually watch in case you wonder, well, what exactly is it? Uh, and it's the author, Rob Reamer, explaining Soul Care a little bit. Uh, and, and there's just all the information you need. And then you can hit register and you can go and purchase a ticket. Now, just so you know, the tickets are $100 for the, the two-day conference. Um, that covers the conference costs. It also covers uh, lunch both days. It also covers some coffee breaks, uh, covers some materials we're gonna give you to make notes and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you can register and pay right there online. Uh, if, if you don't do technology well, and if you don't know uh, how to do that, um, come in during office hours and our staff will help you uh, register. We can uh, do that for you. Uh, Tammy and Jen at the front there can, can help, or Brian can help you uh, do that. Um, uh, Now, we do not want the cost to be a barrier to anyone, so if you hear that, say, I really want to come, but but the the cost is difficult, uh, don't worry, uh, we're going to work something out in the next few weeks on how we can potentially scholarship some people, so don't don't feel like it's closed. We don't want it to be a barrier to anyone. Um, And One other thing about that, uh, it's really helpful and strongly recommended if you can read the book before the conference. Uh, Now you don't have to. Uh, you, You can just come to the conference, that's absolutely fine. Uh, but it would really help you if you can read the book because if you've ever been to a conference, you know, it's like sometimes, you know, it's a lot of stuff coming at you, and if you've had a chance to read and process the material a little bit first, it really, you'll gain more from it. And so we have a, a case of about 44, I think it's 44 books we have, and we can make them available for $15, which is cheaper even than Amazon. I think there are about 19 on Amazon, and so we have uh, 44 of those at the front desk, Uh, $15. Uh, Once they're gone, they're gone. But if you want to come and purchase one uh, to read ahead, if you like to mark it up and and make notes, uh, you can come and do that and get that from the info booth or the office during the week. Um, I believe there's a couple of copies in the library if you want to get them out too just to read. Uh, Five copies. There's five still there. Wonderful. So we've got some copies in the library too. Thank you, Julia. Um, so you can, uh, you can get them from the library as well. Um, and that's it for now. And we'll be talking more about it the closer uh, we get there. Last Sunday, we learned the identity of John the Baptist as Malachi's Elijah, if you uh, recall and if you were here. So I talked about how after 400 years, w- without prophetic utterance, All of a sudden, a voice uh, comes out in the wilderness. John is out there in the wild places, and he's declaring the word of the Lord, which fulfilled the prophecy that said a voice would sound in the wilderness. After a 400 year gap, finally, there was the word of the Lord coming to the people of Israel once again. A prophet who was dressed kind of like the prophet Elijah was described and how he dressed. A prophet declaring that the people ought to prepare the way of the Lord. The day had arrived, his coming was imminent. John the Baptist was Malachi's Elijah. And if uh, you missed last Sunday, you might want to go back and listen to that. I did kind of like an intro to the Gospel of Mark as well, which might be helpful. And you can understand a little bit more about what I mean by Malachi's Elijah. Uh, so he's out there. And as well as being out there uh, kind of declaring the word of the Lord and prepare the way, he was also baptizing people. And he wasn't just baptizing Gentiles as an initiation right into the community of the covenant people, which happened, but he was actually baptizing everyone. In fact, he was probably mostly baptizing Jews. He was leveling the playing field. All needed to be baptized, and this was a baptism of repentance. Confess your sins, turn away from your sinful life and your selfish ways of living and so on, and prepare the way of the Lord. This is how you prepare for the coming of God in your life. Repent and confess. So that was last week, and then this happens. Mark 1, verses 9 to 13 Uh, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. God's word to us today. So wait a second. John the Baptist was offering a baptism of repentance. He was calling the people to confess their sins, and then Jesus gets baptized. How does that make sense? Did Jesus confess his sins? Did Jesus repent? Well, anybody who knows anything about Jesus would say, well, well, no. He can't have. He, he was God. How could Jesus confess? So why on earth was he being baptized then? And, and I said to you last Sunday that the Mark is actually quite a short gospel. It doesn't contain a lot of the teachings uh, that some of the others do, like, like Matthew and, and Luke. So if you were to read this in, in Matthew, he just offers a little bit more information. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells this story of Jesus being baptized. And in it, John the Baptist actually kind of um, kind of sort of box at it. He says, well, essentially what he says to Jesus is, well, well, no, 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 you should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. What's going on here? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You need to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And so John the Baptist consents and he baptizes him. Like John gets it. Why am I baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. What's happening, church family, is that is that just like it said in Philippians, in Philippians chapter two, it says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the beginning of Jesus humbling himself. Now, actually the very beginning of Jesus humbling himself was in the incarnation when he was born, right? That was the condescension of God, the coming down of God to be born a human. That was the real beginning. But this also is the beginning, at least as Jesus as an adult of him beginning to humble himself. There is no account of Jesus' confession. There is no account of Jesus' repentance because he doesn't need to, and that we know. He doesn't need to do that. But he nevertheless submits to the baptism in order to identify with sinful humanity. I have no sin, but I will submit to this baptism of repentance, a place where all of the people are confessing their sins and repenting of their sins in order to stand with them in their confession and repentance. That's what he was doing. He's identifying with sinful humanity. He became sin who knew no sin. So he did become sin but he knew no sin. This is Jesus' ultimate identification with us, and it was Jesus taking up the Israel story because he's out there in the wilderness and the, the water and all of those things, taking up the Israel story, who had, which had kind of gotten stuck. It had shuddered to a halt. It had stuttered. It was like stuck in the mud, and Jesus was there getting the Israel story back on the road and on the road towards its fulfillment and its destiny uh, and, uh, and so on. And he needed to do that. God needed to do that because humans had failed at that. This was how God was going to do it. And, church family, this is part of the beauty of Christianity. This is one of the wonderful things about our faith. The fact that we don't have a God who is aloof and distant from us. Rather, we have one who has come and stood right with us, taking our punishment for sin scandalously because we deserve it, he's the only one who didn't deserve it. We have a God who has taken the initiative. If he hadn't taken the initiative, if he hadn't moved, we would have been lost, left scurrying around in the darkness, flopping about like a salmon out of water to make a West Coast metaphor. We'd be lost without hope if he had not taken the initiative. We have a God who understands our pain and our brokenness and has decisively done something about it. If you're here today and you are a person who feels broken, or you're a person who has experienced hurt and pain and rejection and loss, if you feel like you were never really given much of a chance In life, perhaps you were abused, you've been on a tough ride, you're the victim of some kind of injustice, there is some form of pain in your life. And even non Christians say, be kind to everyone because we don't know everybody's, we don't know what's going on in people's lives, we don't know people's personal pain. That is such a true word. We all carry stuff. And some of us carry it more acutely than others, but we all carry stuff. Let me tell you, if that is you, that doesn't define you in Jesus. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean it's not part of your story. Doesn't mean that it's not hurt. Doesn't mean that it's something you have to continually work through and all of that. It just means it doesn't actually have to define who you are. It's not the, the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that you're in Christ and he will fix it. And he may fix it or partially fix it in this lifetime. And he will certainly fix it in the day to come. Hallelujah. And you will be made all right. So back to the story. Jesus comes out into the wilderness, and, he, and I kind of envisage him sort of stepping down into the river, and he goes out to meet John, who's, who's maybe waist deep and they have this interaction, and then John takes hold of Jesus, and he, he lowers him before the flowing river of the Jordan. And then he brings him up, and all of a sudden, now we see, oh, it's a different baptism, because something happens that doesn't happen the other times. As Jesus comes up, the Bible says that the heavens were torn apart. The heavens were torn apart, and... and, and um when we think about that, when we think about that idea of Jesus seeing the heavens talking about, I want you to not think about, you know, it's like a little door up there to the right of a cloud kind of opens and he kind of peers. That, that isn't the, the view we kind of want to have. Rather, it's actually that a curtain gets pulled Uh, kind of drawn back before him, and it reveals a different dimension of reality. It's almost as though if I were able to see that right now, instead of seeing rows of people in front of me in a soundboard, and instead of seeing a balcony and some lights and some doors underneath the balcony, I shouldn't have looked directly at the lights, Um, instead of seeing any of that, all of a sudden I would see a different dimension of reality right in front of me. I've often talked to you about how there is actually a thin veil that separates our realm of existence and God's realm of existence. It's why we can say God is here. He's not up there somewhere with the angels who, let's be honest, are a little bit bored because they're on a cloud somewhere, they're playing harps all day, and, and they're up there somewhere. Like, that's not what it is. God is here. Like here, in this room, just behind a thin veil. And sometimes that thin veil gets thinner. Sometimes when we're worshiping, it feels like it's a little bit thinner. Sometimes when a prayer is answered or somebody gets healed, it's like it's been pierced for a bit. And a little bit of that heaven has escaped into earth. He's right here. He's not up there. So Jesus comes up out of the water and this is what he sees. And... um, the word that is used there is, is not just open, it's torn open. And the verb actually is pretty forceful. Um, it, it isn't just open, it's, like, it's skismenos. It means like ripped or torn open. There's a force to it. And I think the force is important because if you open something like a door, well, you can close it again. But if something is torn, it can't easily go back together. It's actually the, exactly the same verb that's used at Jesus' crucifixion when the temple curtain is torn and ripped in two. It's the same verb that is used and I think it's important it's like Mark wants us to know that when Jesus come, uh, came up out of the water that thin veil was, was torn and it was ripped and heaven broke loose and it was never going to go back again it was an answer to the cry of the prophet Isaiah who in the chapter 64, verse one says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and the, and the mountains would tremble before you is what, he, is what he prays and what he hopes. That word rend is like torn apart. Oh, that the heavens would rend and you would come down and the, the mountains would, would tremble before you. It's happening, Isaiah, right here where Jesus is baptized. The heavens have been rent and the spirit has come down. God has come down. Heaven was open, it won't easily be closed again, all heaven was loosed and God is here whether people like it or not. The kingdom is breaking in, the kingdom was coming and Satan's days are numbered. And so Jesus comes up out of the water and, and, the, and the heavens are torn open and the first thing that comes from that realm of existence is the spirit in the form of a dove and it lands on him. And this is an important thing to understand the theology of Jesus, because uh, I said this maybe a few months ago, but I'll say it again. At the level of Jesus being, the theological word we use is ontology, The, uh, the level of his being, he remained fully and completely God. He wasn't now, you know, less God in some way. He was still fully God. He chose, however, to to lay aside some of His divine privileges, some of His uh, divine abilities and so on. He didn't lose them at the level of His being. He was still fully God. He just chose to set them aside, to switch them off, to disable them for the purpose of taking on human flesh. He did it so that as he took on human flesh and thus became fully human, he was able to fully enter into our human experience. So it was an addition of humanity, but it wasn't in any way a subtraction of divinity. He held both natures in himself at the level of his being. So in his humanity, that meant he needed the spirit for empowerment and presence, just like you and I do. He submitted to live out a fully human life and became dependent on the Spirit's empowerment and he relied on the Father and the Father's direction. It's why he's able to say in the gospel, Well, I only do the things I hear the uh, hear the Father say. Like he relied on the Father. It's why Jesus was able to apparently not know everything all the time. Only the Father knows, he says he's God, how can he not know? He's still, at the level of his ontology, fully God. It's just he had turned off some of those divine attributes for the purpose of fully entering into our experience. And I think it makes Jesus more relatable to us, right? Because I think sometimes people will say things like, well, of course Jesus didn't give in to temptation because he was God after all. He had a massive advantage over us. Okay, he was God, absolutely, He was God at the level of his being, but he was also fully human. And if the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, we have to believe that it was possible to tempt Jesus. Because if it wasn't possible to tempt Jesus because he was God, then he couldn't really have been fully human then, in the same way that we are. He had to be able to be tempted. He was human and lived a fully human life in the muck and mire, a mess of this world during the Roman Empire, no less, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, that was as mucky and messy as it gets. And he did it in a sinless way, something that none of us could ever do. So he's our example of how to live a fully dependent life on God and the, God the Spirit and hopefully it makes him more re- relatable. The, the second part to notice is that the spirit comes in the form of a dove. And a dove uh, is often symbolic of the Holy Spirit, is often symbolic of peace as well. So it wasn't like a swooping eagle, it was like a, a dove that kind of descended upon him. And I think one of the things that we're supposed to uh, see there is, is for the biblical reader, is supposed to remember the, the other time where the spirit kind of hovered over the waters. Here's the spirit hovering over Jesus over the waters. When was the last time the spirit it hovered over the waters, at creation. It hovered over those primordial waters. And, and at that time, what God, the, God did in those moments was that he then created order out of that chaos and created a creation in which it was possible for human habitation. And we're supposed to see that, I think, because Jesus was bringing and kick-starting new creation. It was beginning with him, and it'll be fulfilled when there's a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth, not a float off to the clouds, but a new heaven and a new earth that the book of Revelation talks about. Once again, we're gripped in chaos and the spirit was hovering to bring order from that chaos. And that order was coming on Jesus and through Jesus and what he was going to do. It's why in Corinthians it says, Behold, I make all things new. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And one of the most amazing parts of this passage for me then is verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I'm well pleased. I think it's one of the most poignant and possibly the most potentially transformative parts of this this passage for us because of what it says about our identity, what it first said about the identity of Jesus. Here is the affirming voice of the Father in heaven, declaring his love for and pleasure in his Son. You are my Son. You should be rooted in your identity of sonship or daughtership. I am your father. You are the beloved. My fatherly parental love covers you, my child. I'm well pleased with you. I'm so pleased and happy about who you are. And and this affirmation of the father comes before Jesus has done anything. He hasn't healed anyone yet. He hasn't driven a demon out of anybody yet. He's not preached the Sermon on the Mount yet. He hasn't turned water into wine yet. He hasn't done any of these things. So the fatherly affirmation and the fatherly love is not based on what he does. It's based on who he is. Church family, there are so many of us who live our lives as though we have to do a bunch of things and be really good and be really spiritual and do all the things. And if we do all those things, then God will love us more or God will love us, period, or God won't be as mad at us as we think he usually is. And that when we mess up and when we sin and when we let him down, then we lose his love and we have to do a whole bunch of things to try to get back into his good favor and make him love us again. That is a deeply problematic way to think. Because it's just plain wrong. It isn't true. What it can lead to is a works righteousness... What it can lead to, in the worst case, it can lead to a Phariseeism. We're kind of like the Pharisees. We have to earn and we think we're so good and spiritual. And we can just live in shame and feel like we're a worm. If you get nothing else from this morning, please get this. And if you like to write things down, you might want to write this down. If you get nothing this year, get this. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any more, so quit trying, but there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to do good. And it doesn't mean that we should quit trying, you know, uh, repenting, confessing, and so on, and quit doing bad we should be trying to grow in Christ-likeness. We should be throwing off the old self and putting on all of those things and sanctification and all those wonderful things. It's just that those things are, are, not, are not tied to whether God loves you or not or his lack of love for you. Any good parent would discipline their child, will at times get mad at their child, will have, we'll have to tell them off, uh, will have to punish them, will be disappointed in their actions and all of that. But what good parent would ever say, oh, well, son... Um, you, you messed up, you were mean to your sister, just want you to know, officially, your mom and I don't love you anymore, um, so, so you need to go. <laughs> like, what, what good parent, and I, reckon, I recognize there's bad parents, what good parent would ever do that? No, we still love so deeply our children. The reason we discipline them is because we actually love them and we want them to turn out to be good people. We don't want them to, to, to be harmed and so on. There, that's actually an expression of love, love wear wear different faces And and if we love like that, we who are so fallen and broken and have such proclivity to evil, how much more than the infinite, pure, perfect love of the God of all that is? How much more amazing is His love? So relax. Quit trying to earn His love. Don't live in shame because of your failings. Let guilt turn you to repentance, but then don't let shame keep you trapped. That's the enemy keeping you trapped. It is not God keeping you trapped. Don't let shame hold you, but rather understand your love as a child, stand in your brokenness and allow him to love you. That's the best application I can give you. Someone might say, okay, Jamie, fine, fine, that's that's all good. But actually, if we go back to the passage, God is saying that about Jesus. He's not saying it about you or me. And I would say to you, okay, except if you know Jesus, you are in Christ, right? And Christ is in you. And a robust Trinitarian theology understands the dance of the Trinity, of an eternal dance of mutual love. That is, in the words of Daryl Johnson, at the center of the universe exists a relationship It's a relationship of perfect mutual love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's eternal. They're eternally loving one another in perfect community. The one God expressed in an amazing threeness. And in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying, and he's talking to the Father, and he's praying on our behalf, uh, he's praying um, uh, to God, and he says, you know, may they be one as you and I are one. And then he goes on, and he says, and may they be in us. Father, as you're in me and I'm as in you, this is Jesus' prayers, I'm in you and you're in me, may they be in us. What? That'll blow your mind if you stop and think about it long enough. May we be in the Trinity? May we be in that relationship that exists at the center of the universe? Wow. So yes, the affirmation of the Father is true for you as well. You are his daughter you are his son. You are the beloved, and with you he is well-pleased. He delights in you, and he sings over you as you sleep. Isn't that amazing? So let me close with a quote. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. wrote on this passage Uh, It's coming up on the screen for you. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point that when the living God looks at us, every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna say it again and I'm gonna personalize it. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at you, when he looks at you, every believing Christian, He says to you what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees you, not as you are in yourself, but as you are in Christ Jesus. So if you are struggling with your identity this morning or struggling with some issue of great pain in your life, know and understand and live from the absolute perfect love, the pure love of God. Um, I'm gonna ask the team to come up. And as they come up, I'm going to get you to repeat after me. Sounds like a wedding ceremony. It is in a sense. Repeat after me. Nothing I can do can make God love me anymore. And nothing I can do will make God love me any less. Barry, give us one of your amens. Amen. Hello.